Hello everyone, thanks for tuning in. I'm your host Davis Rajan. I welcome you to the On Deck Your B2B Marketing Podcast. Today on this podcast, we have Mike Carroll, who's a seasoned marketer and has seen marketing evolve over the years. Mike has a very informal approach to life and work, and that has worked pretty well for him. So what I'll do is, uh, Mike, you know, for our audience benefit, I will let you do the introduction of yourself so that, uh, you know, people get to know you better. And um, it's all yours, Mike. All right. Sounds good. So, yeah. So my name is Mike Carroll. Um, I'm the head of growth at uh, Phenomenon, which is a, a growth marketing agency um, here in Detroit. I'm in the Detroit area. Um, you know, I don't want to bore people with my, you know, professional CV. Um, but I've been doing um, marketing and communications work for the better part of um, two decades, I suppose. Um, you know, I actually started off working in politics uh, before Facebook advertising was even a thing and then transitioned into doing more marketing work when the political world, um, how should I say, became distasteful to me. Um, so right. I moved in and what I've done a ton of work on, uh, is on the B2B side. I was a head of growth at nutshell, which is a, you know, a B2 SMB CRM, um, in the space. And I've built, a, you know, a smaller agency with a, a different partner previously called Kaleidico. And we focused almost entirely, um, on B2B businesses, um, from, you know, startup world all the way up to, you know, at the time, uh, you know, fortune 100 companies like, um, uh, what do you call it, like CompuWare or Covacent, um, a lot in the tech space, uh, you know, on that side of things. So I've got a ton of experience on the B2B side. Um, it's one, you know, it, it no longer is an underserved marketplace of ideas, um, but for a long time it was. Uh, but I'm sure we'll get into all of that, you know, as we kind of dig into some of your questions. Sure. I, I think that's uh, that's uh, great, uh, Mike. Um, your your political experience, uh, hopefully it helps with your work as well, I'm hoping. <laughs> well, um, persuasion, persuasion is persuasion, Davis, right? You know, <laughs> you know, whether, whether you're selling yeah. an idea or you're, you're selling yeah. a t-shirt, you know, it's a, the tactical approach um, might differ, but the strategic approach tends to be the same. It's all sales and marketing. It's all sales and marketing. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> great. Um so what, what I want to jump into is, uh, you know, what has amazed me a lot over the years is that uh, marketing continues to transform, right? And, uh, you know, I would like you to talk about how this has transformed the last decade or two, uh, especially in the marketing agency space and how what you're doing to cope up with it. If you can talk about that a little bit, it'll be great. Yeah, I mean, in the last decade, I mean, the changes have been enormous, um, you know, as, as you know, and, and I'm, I'm sure your audience has, has experienced this as well as just professional marketers. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, that was 2012, you know, um, you know, Facebook had only been around for less than half a decade, you know, Facebook advertising or even, you know, LinkedIn or platforms like this were just in their nascent stages. And so, you know, digital was definitely a thing. And I've been doing digital marketing, you know, during that entire time, Um it's funny, actually, I heard someone say recently, if someone describes what they do as digital marketing, you know, they shouldn't be hired because what marketing isn't digital today. Um, I, I took small offense to that, right? Because of course, you know, I came of age in a time um, when digital was separate, it was totally separate. And people were doing trade show marketing and, and physical marketing, direct mail marketing, you know, direct sales work, you know, th that type of stuff. So I think, I think what's changed the most um, for B2B marketing specifically over the last you know, 10 years is sort of twofold. One, the level of tools available to both B2B marketing and sales teams has, you know, it blown up exponentially. 
um, to the point where your tech stack drives the strategy um, or at least or at least has to play a major component in how you're executing the strategy for your marketing and sales operation. That was not the case 10 years ago. I mean, you might use a CRM um, or these types of tools, but it wasn't necessarily that you were buying, you know, a gong or, uh, you know, or a very specific type of software like outbound.io or something like that, that really matched the, the strategy that you were leveraging. So, so technology has been obviously the, the hugest impact. The other impact I think that's changed quite a bit over the last 10 years is the understanding of what B2B marketing is. And SaaS B2B marketers have kind of, you know, and no offense to anybody that's not in the SaaS marketplace, but have sort of pioneered this approach, which is the idea of, of business to individual. Um, and I, I think at the end of the day, what what B two B marketers today realize is that you're not, you know, at the beginning, you, you know, you would talk to companies, so to speak, and, and even then, ten years ago, that probably wasn't the best strategy. But today, it is universally understood. A, a couple of things: one, that you know, there's going to be multiple people involved in that buying decision process. So, and you have to talk to each person individually to their needs and wants in that buying process. And that, so your marketing itself becomes more of a, a business to individual type of experience or even a one-to-one -one experience, even at scale. Um, and that goes back to the technology thing. So those two things, I think, have, have vastly changed how B2B marketers operate over the last decade. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think you know, you touched upon very, uh, a couple of very good points. One is the technology piece and also understanding of the b2b marketing right i think i think uh, you're absolutely right on 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 those two accounts right and and that's what is really um significantly affecting the transformation as such right um my, my follow-up question uh to be honest you know you've kind of touched upon a few of the answers over there but I, i'll still ask uh, to be very specific um what are some of the top challenges that you see that your customers face right now um and what are you doing to address those so I think this, yeah, so I think this goes with, um, you know, across any space, whether it's B2B or B2C, I, I, you know, marketing, um, how do I describe this? I, so the saturation is the problem. Um, there are so many different channels and so many streams of information and content that, it, that a, a human being encounters during their day. And the accessibility of marketing um you know, from a budget standpoint, it has been drastically reduced to the point where anybody can market anything. You know, that wasn't the case. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever the, you know, whatever time frame we're talking about, you know, there was, um, there were budget constraints for people to, you know, your local pet store could not run a TV commercial. That's not yeah. something they would do, right? And, and right. the way people that were consuming advertising was limited to a number of channels. Now, I think the, the number one problem that everybody deals with is the super saturation of marketing messages across devices and channels. And so the, the way to, there's a couple of ways to help customers address that. Um, and it becomes an efficiency issue. Uh, one is on the targeting side is, is making sure that you have a truly data-driven operation so that you understand, you know, not only what message and, and creative is working um, in a particular channel, um, but to whom it's working for uh, so that you can continue to, to ratchet down your target and all that kind of stuff. So I, I think, you know, everyone talks about a data-driven approach to marketing. And if you're not talking about it or doing it in today's world, then you're not doing it correctly. So I don't want to say it like it's some sort of um, revelation. Everybody who's listening to this podcast is should be using data in some way, shape, or form. But the way that we help our customers is probably slicing that data across different channels, right? So, 
you know, how does a Facebook ad impact direct traffic on your website? How does your display advertising generate, you know, search impression share on long tail keywords in Google Search Console? So taking data from disparate channels, lining it up appropriately, and then slicing it together so that you can understand the omni-channel effect of what your marketing dollars are buying you is definitely one thing that we're doing that's helping our customers. The other thing which I think everybody should be most focused on is just the quality of content and or creative. So when I say content and creative, I mean anything that you're producing for for the web or physical or whatever else. It matters more now than ever that what you're putting in the world, either as straight up content for informational educational purposes or ads themselves have intrinsic both you know, business and entertainment value. Because when you think about it, even on LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever channel you're talking about, your competition is not just your your offline competitors or the businesses you're in competition with, your competition is BuzzFeed, your competition is TMZ, your competition is the Wall Street Journal. Everyone is competing for eyeballs in these most common streams. And if what you're producing for that channel isn't compelling enough to stop somebody to, to at least look at it and take notice, uh, then it's it's not going to work. So, so the, a paramount on the quality of your creative and content, I think, is becoming even more important, even in the most niche categories where you, you don't have that type of people don't have their enough time to waste it on crappy content. Uh, absolutely. Uh, right. I, I think I think also in the content space, um, creating content which is specific to a niche, right? Like, for example, content which is related to real estate, for example, for a specific customer, um, you, you need to create some quality content on that, right? Otherwise, nobody's going to, as, as you mentioned, nobody's going to have a look at it. But I was just, just wondering, you know, just to follow up on this particular question, how does a small organization, let's say, a, a, not a mid-size, maybe a startup, right? How do they, how can they address this content creation issue uh, if they have to compete with Wall Street or uh, Journal or some of these larger players? What's your That's recommendation? It's a great question. And, you know, the the freelance economy is the is the answer to that question. So, you know, w- and then understanding what channel you're going into that with. So the world is now different, as we all know. You know, more and more people don't want a job, which is sounds bad for companies, but actually it's, it's a real advantage because let's just take, for example, that you think Instagram is going to be a good channel for you and your and your and your small business. If you were to go out into the space that is your, um, you know, that is your your niche or your marketplace, what you'll find are super expensive influencers or content creators. But you'll also find a bunch of young and up and coming content creators that would be more than willing to develop highly customized, beautiful content for your business at at a price, by the way, that's reasonable. And and what I mean by that is you have to catch them before they become quote unquote, you know, internet famous for to use a boomer term, if you will, um, before they become an influencer. And, you know, it's something that we're doing here at at Phenomenon, which is a channel-specific creative studio where we have the capabilities in-house to both either recruit third-party content creators or to do it ourselves in our own studio. You know, channel-specific content at a high level, um, um, but a, a reasonable reasonable cost. The best thing that's happened to content creation for companies um, and I see these job listings all the time. I'm looking for a storyteller. I'm looking for this. And they're trying to hire someone that can do video, audio, 
and written content all at the same time, it's going to be really hard to find someone that wants to work for your very specific company all the time. Content creators want to create new stuff. They want to be as entertained as well. And so going out to the gig economy or free, leveraging freelancers on on platforms that can connect you with content creators is is the number one way to address this problem. And the best part, sorry, I skipped over this, but the best part about what's happened over the last five years, um, you know, five to 10 years, we'll say, but but really over the last five years is the the lowered cost for technology to produce that content. And I, I specifically mean what we're doing right now. We're using Zencaster to create a podcast to beam out to the entire world. It's costing you, Davis, nothing except your time and my time. And maybe what, a, a $100 a month subscription to your Zencaster Pro account? And you're producing a, essentially a radio show that is of the same quality to a degree that your local radio station or even NPR would produce. Like this conversation will not sound any different or any of that kind of stuff. Same thing with digital photography and content creators. You know, 20 years ago, you'd have to spend a quarter million dollars on a camera to give you cinema quality footage for, you know, for whatever you wanted to shoot. Today, that's a $2,000 camera, which some high school kid's dad bought him for his birthday. And he's been creating content in an advertising or editing digitally for his entire life. And so content creators, beautiful content creators are everywhere. You just have to be willing to go out and find them. So for smaller companies or startups to address these types of issues, it's really just a question of time and pressure to find the types of content creators out in the world that can create the things that you need. And they're more than happy to do so. And, and the price is usually reasonable. Uh, absolutely. And I think I think uh, you 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 seem to have understood this really well here, right? So um, I believe that's that could be a great solution. And, you know, I, I think a lot of companies or especially small companies who are just starting up um, essentially can, uh, you know, use these freelance platforms to kind of get their work done, right? And and it's it's much economical um, and it doesn't uh, burn their pockets, right? So, so that's and it's flexible. Yeah, yeah. It's flexible because there's no healthcare costs. There's no 401k yeah. costs. There, you know, there, right. there's not the sunk... I don't want to say yeah. sunk cost because, but there's the opportunity cost of like having to find that person, onboard them, hire them. You should still treat your freelancers like you treat employees. You should onboard them correctly, make them feel like they're part of your company, invite them to all hands meetings, like treat them like employees, but know that if your project ends, they have other things to go and do. And so that you can be nimble in how you're approaching your marketing. Um, even as an agency, you know, I've got 30 full-time, you know, marketers, developers, designers, you know, videographers, whatever, you know, analysts all working for me, but we still use freelancers for either hyper-specific projects or a niche that requires a certain level of institutional understanding um, or historic knowledge or whatever the case might be. There's, I think a lot of the times it used to be like frowned upon, like, oh, you use a freelancer for that or, you know, whatever else, like it was a dirty word, you know, which I don't understand, but but today it's it's just the way of the world and it and it needs to be because people are reprioritizing you know their lives. So I don't mind sharing with your audience that like one of the hardest positions to hire for for an agency or an in-house company right now are a paid acquisition specialists, right? Someone that can understand how to run your Google ads, your Facebook ads, Instagram ads, TikTok, whatever the case might be. And the reason for that is because both technology accessibility through the web and these new platforms have made these people are in such high demand. They're the new mechanics, right? Like everyone has a website. Everybody wants to run ads just like everyone has a car and they need specific knowledge to run these platforms. And they're in such high demand that they figured out that they can make more money for themselves by taking on simply two or three clients working three quarters or even half the time that they would at a regular job. 
and make as much, if not more money. And so their salary requirements are through the roof. So if you wanted to hire a PPC specialist or Google, sorry, I'm an old school. I still say PPC, but a Google ad specialist for your company, um, you're gonna have to pay through the nose for that. But you can get a, a, a contractor that can run your Google ads campaign for a couple hours a week and still produce the results for you. So you know, that's just one example. But, but yeah, it's just, it's a different orientation and it, it's all to the good, by the way. There's there's no you know downside to it. Now, if you find yourself paying a contractor for 40 hours a week worth of work, okay, well, maybe then it's time you have enough of that work to maybe want to hire someone in-house and, and, you know, and figure out how that works. But even in that scenario, who cares if you're paying them for 40 hours worth of work? That's great um, if they're willing to do that. So, you know, again, I don't see a downside to it. Absolutely. And I think, I think that's, that's where the world is heading towards with all this remote work and uh, the future of work and all of that stuff that, you know, I also get very excited and interested about. I read a lot about the future of work. So work is going to be something that will come to you rather than people going to work, right? That's, that's a new thing that I learned. You know, it's, it's quite amazing and interesting. Um, However, you know, I, I, I just want to also touch upon this. Um, so obviously, we've spoken about a lot of things here. What about B2B marketing has surprised you lately? Like you're like absolutely got surprised with it and you said, oh, this is this is wonderful or whatever that was, right? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so it's the same thing, but it surprises me in two different directions. Um, and I'll be curious to see what you think about this. But so... So what surprises me um, most often is is one of two scenarios. Is one is the willingness of some B two B marketing operations to be very, um, I'll call it like loose with their brand and voice and understanding to, to 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 infuse their brand and the way they communicate with people with a way more colloquial approach. Um, so it's not so stodgy and feeling like B2B, like, you know, one of the complaints of B2B marketing, right, is that it's it's rigid. Um, and, and it makes sense because you've got bosses and, you know, people want to, the brand treated the right way. And this happens on the B2C side as well. Any any company. So, so I'm always surprised by those companies that are willing to, you know, to truly take a risk um, and and be themselves, to be, you know, to let their team be their authentic selves, either individually or as a collective. Um, you know, in the marketplace. In the opposite direction, I am equally surprised that the vast majority of other companies don't recognize how successful that is and still kind of stick with this old, stodgy, you know, everything has to be polished. We have to talk in business English at all times. And, you know, and, and it doesn't feel like you're talking to a human being. And so so I'm equally surprised by some of those those companies that go out on a limb um, and then I'm, I'm probably more surprised by those companies that refuse to at least embrace a portion of this new colloquialism, this new informality that I think people are demanding. The people in the world, you can almost see it. It drives my father nuts, by the way, who's, you know, he's 73. So, um, you know, the fact that I wear a T-shirt to work every day, he just does not understand. <laughs> right. And when I talk to him about how hard I've worked to wear a t-shirt to work every day. He also doesn't understand that, right? So, so like I worked really hard. I wore a suit to work every day when I first started my career. And I worked really hard because I hated wearing a suit to be good enough at my job, you know, at the time to where I could simply wear what I wanted to work, which is to be comfortable, not look like a bum. But but the point I'm yeah. making is that the world is more informal because the world takes itself less seriously on an individual level and people's priorities are shifting. And it surprises me that many B2B marketing teams and companies that operate in a B2B space don't recognize that their customers 
will appreciate and respond very positively to them kind of like lifting this veil of, of, you know, this facade of seriousness all the time. Unless you're doing heart surgery, whatever we're doing to help another business is not so critical that we need to talk about it like it's heart surgery. It's, it's, it's so interesting. Right. And, and Mike, do you, kind of talk to people about this like you know when you come across people who are very serious about their business and they're very formal and and I get what you're saying because you know I am I'm actually in this industry and I see that uh, informal approach works better uh, than that very serious formal approach but do you talk to people about it what are the I I mean I do all the time I mean our you know one of the one of the parts of my job that that I you know Speaking of taking things seriously, but, but, but that I take seriously is is my role in defending the decisions my creative team makes. Um, you know, I don't get to be very creative in my role anymore. I, I you know I do much more strategy and, and you know running a business as, as you know it's it's more management stuff. It's HR. It's you know all the things I never wanted to do necessarily, but I love growing the business. But my favorite thing to do is to go to bat for my creative team to talk to our clients about, you know, I want them to take creative risks. And that's what that's what's going to make a difference in both performance and the resonance of your message in a marketplace. And so I'm constantly talking to people about this. And it's a, you know, it's a battle I probably lose more often than not. Um, but it's something I don't mind pushing on and, and will continue to do so because t- to your point, leveraging the informality and unique nature of your team, their personalities, and letting that come through in the way that you market to another business you're not talking to a company, you're talking to an individual. So I guess think of it this way. If I was marketing a product, a SaaS product, let's say that was specifically designed for developers, but I'm going into the enterprise marketplace, um, you know, maybe like a super metrics or, or something like that. Um, I'm not talking to that company. I'm talking to developers. So, okay, what kind of developers, how old are they? What type of things resonate with them? You know, they might get a Breakfast Club joke in our advertising, right? Because they're fans of 80s movies. They like John John Hughes. They might get a Ferris Bueller's reference or something of that nature. Does that match the company's message? No, but it is connecting your audience, you know, and your marketers together by like a shared cultural experience. And then in turn, the reaction you get from that audience, of course, is that, wow, you know, blah, blah, blah company is cool enough to get that like my job is hard and I work hard every day. Not only does their tool provide value, but their marketers seem to understand that like I could use a little entertainment today um, and, and these types of things. So I think it's a missed, it's a real missed opportunity for, for a lot of B2B companies to not re- respect and understand what the life of the people they're talking to is really like and how to use your marketing. The one thing I say about marketing all the time, Davis, is that, you know, Marketing is at its core is persuasion masquerading as entertainment. Right. If you can entertain someone to bring them in, that's what gives you the opportunity to persuade them. But it starts with the entertainment part. And I think a lot of B2B companies miss that. Right. Absolutely. And even with the new approach that you have, I'm still assuming that you're a big fan of the 70s and 80s movies, the Marlon Brando the Clint Eastwood movies. I'm hoping. I am. I'm an old man. You know, so, I mean, not old man, but but by digital standards, I'm a dinosaur. So, right. So, so yes. Yeah. Okay. Great. Uh, yeah, I like those type of movies. There, there are some movies that cannot be matched, even if even with the modern, uh, by the modern world. Um, so so great. And I think I think you know what this brings up really is uh, in terms of. Uh, I would I would like to ask this question, especially for our customers or. Uh, our listeners, our audience, to kind of take away, right? So, in terms of what what advice or what are the top two things that you 
think um, the B2B marketing leaders should implement to acquire more customers uh, in 2022? Uh, content. So, I mean, the it's actually the oldest school tactic of, of all time that, that people seem to have abandoned in a marketplace that continues to be dominated by fast results and, you know, and sort of the, I don't know, forgive this phrase, but the crack of paid acquisition. It's really satisfying to be able to put up an ad, get leads, get them in the pipeline and close them. But the problem, you know, not that I have any issue with paid acquisition, it's, it's an important component of any marketing um, program and it should play a role. But I think more often than not, content and SEO get the short shrift. They don't get enough attention paid to them. They're not, you know, people look at organic traffic still today like it is, you know, quote unquote, free traffic. And people aren't investing in the quality of that content, the quality of the creative that goes it, the promotion behind it. Um, and that, that kind of feeds back into like the attribution problem is, well, if I create this blog post and I don't have a, a you know, an end to end source to sale style of attribution, or it's challenging to see what role this content plays in the funnel, that they abandon it because it's unattributable. And, and I just think that in, in today's in today's marketplace, no matter what marketplace you're talking about, your best opportunity for growth and efficiency is going to come in the, on the content side. The other, the other part to that, which is also the hardest thing to do, is organic social. It is like, and, and then of course there's a there's a debate here as well: organic social by the company or organic social, you know, by leaders in the company through their own personal brands. Th- that's another opportunity that I think you know, the best example of that would be like Dave Gearhart, who kind of like broke the mold um, when he was at uh, Drift. Are you familiar with Dave? Um, no, not really. Can you? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll elaborate. So, I mean, so, so Dave, uh, Gearhart was the, you know, first was the first marketing hire at Drift and, and Drift, of course, you know, for those that don't know, um, is, you know, it technically it's a chat bot tool, but it's not just that. I mean, it's live chat on your website. It's, you know, um, automated question and answer it's uh, lead capture. And of course he, he coined the phrase, he and the, his team over at Drift, conversational marketing, turned it into its own category, but he did so on the back of his own personal brand. He had like a podcast before he became, um, you know, the first marketing hire at Drift. And then once he did that, he's, you know, he goes out and Drift has grown as much by its own product and, it, and its team. I don't want to take anything away from them, but as much by those things as it has by Dave Gearhart's willingness to be like a public personality about B2B marketing in LinkedIn, on Twitter, you know, at conferences, all that kind of stuff. So the idea, the hardest thing is always the thing that's overlooked and that's developing an organic audience, whether it be through social or content and SEO. But if you put enough time and pressure there and you find the right way to go after it, it's the gift that keeps on giving. It's what's going to drive efficiency for um, for acquisition for your company for the, you know, for time immemorial, you know, for, for the long time. Dave Gearhart's no longer adrift, but all the content and stuff they produce, I guarantee is are still developing their highest value pipeline, you know, their their highest value leads, like the ones that are most likely to close, all that kind of stuff. The, and the reason for that is because these channels demand that you provide value first. And if you encounter a customer by providing them value before you're trying to extract value from them, that relationship's going to be all the more solidified, all the more trust-based, all those things are going to be more important. So uh, that to me is the best way to long-term, to, to build long-term sustainable growth for a B2B company in 2022. 
that's that's quite interesting. And and how do you see these companies really bringing in the budget for these paid acquisitions? Is that is that uh, do all, most companies do that, or what, what percentage of companies rely on paid acquisition? I you know I would I would imagine um, it would be I would think it would have to be close to 90 percent. I mean there I I have it's pretty rare for me to encounter a company whether in the startup space or certainly an established you know company that says oh you know we don't you know we don't do paid acquisition or we don't do you know Google ads or Facebook ads or you know we'll call it paid lead gen I guess would be the way to think about that. Um, I rarely encounter a company like that. And, and, and when I do encounter a company like that, it's just because they haven't tried it yet. And they're usually coming to me slash us um, to turn it on. One of the phrases I hear all the time from B2B SaaS startups in particular is this phrase that my partner Shane and I talk about all the time. And they come to us and say, we want to turn on the leads as if Google ads or Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever are like a lead generating machine. And you can just flip them on and off. And it's just not the way it works. And I see a lot of companies burn a lot of cash chasing the paid acquisition dragon. Um, and, and the worst part about this, of course, is that you might find a pocket of paid traffic on Google ads that works really well for you. Yeah. The second your competitor picks up on that same traffic and they're larger than you, they just closed a $200 million C round or you know whatever the case might be, and they start to outspend you, you will not be able to keep up with the cost of it. Your CAC's going to skyrocket. You know the leads are going to be, um, you know, less valuable. They're going to be less of a, a lower quality, and it's going to be a real issue. So, so generating organic leads and building your own audience is by far and away the most important thing that any business, particularly a B two B business, can do. And one more thing, David. Sorry, I'm kind of rattling on here a little bit. The other part of that, of course, is being able to collect your own first party data. So, if you want to drive better paid acquisition whether it's the iOS 14 changes or or data privacy as it continues to go on in the future, they're going to continue to ratchet down your ability to borrow people's data from other places. And it's going to be more and more incumbent upon you as a business to collect your own data, whether that's through surveys or people logging in or like you're going to need your own list, list to build lookalike audiences, list to do email marketing with, um, all these types of things. Those types of those types of data collection operations will not be sustainable through paid media. You're going to have to build your own audience again, either an organic social with a podcast like you're doing now or the tried and true method of, you know, of search engine optimization and, and the content that you need to produce it. Yeah, this is this is so true. And I'm hearing this from many people that throwing money on paid ads is not going to solve a problem. It might solve uh some problems immediately probably you know it's like for immediate gratification or whatever that is for look at immediate results but i think long term is seo and content is what i hearing from you uh, that's yeah well i'll say one more thing on that front though because and, and here's where i'm going to contradict myself a little bit which is important i guess because marketing in general can be a contradiction from time to time so while i say that people should focus on the seo thing the reason i say that more importantly is because they're not focusing on it so if you focus more attention on it and make it 40 to 50% of your operation at, at minimum, then it's going to get you the returns. That's not to say that you'll be able to shut off all your paid advertising, but it will make that paid advertising more efficient, right? Because you know what you'll notice in an omni-channel or a, a multi-channel attribution setting is that, oh, well, my last click attribution on my Facebook ads, you know, just as an example, gives me a ROAS of, you know, one you know, so I'm breaking even. And then people think about shutting down that advertising channel. But what they've, you know, what they've either failed to take a look at, or they don't believe 
because the data isn't 100% perfect, which is another misnomer for, you know, for digital in general is that everything can be tracked. It's just not the case. Um, is that that impact on their direct traffic and their branded organic traffic is significant, right? Like those impressions. It, it's funny that the trend, if it was 1972, Davis, and you went to a company and you ran them a, a television ad and their sales went up while the television ad was on TV, they would just attribute it to the TV ad, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, it works. Let's do it again. In 2022, if you do the same thing, you're running Facebook ads, which are all visibility, impressions, whatever, Google Display, Performance Max, whatever you're running. And then the direct return on last click attribution isn't what you want it to be, but your sales went up. People sometimes like refuse to attribute it to that effort as well. And that's silly. It's not different. And I see companies coming back to the understanding, which is great for both marketers and for the companies themselves, that all of your marketing activities, if measured against global ROAS, right? So like, you know, if you want to do a fully loaded CAC where you're saying, okay, here's the cost of my marketing team plus the cost of my advertising temporally analyzed over sales for that particular time period or on a lag, if you've got a longer sales cycle, you should do that. Look at the overall return on investment for your total marketing program. If it's working well, don't change too much. Then you can double click into stuff and say, well, is Facebook the right channel for us? I don't know. Maybe shut it off for a couple of weeks or a month or something and then see what happens elsewhere. Um, but it's, you can't, nothing exists in a vacuum, I guess is the, is the point. Yep. Um, so Mike, you've spoken about so many things now, right? So obviously you are also keeping yourself updated. Um, I'm just curious, where do you go to kind of get yourself updated? And, you know, is there a specific publication or any resource that you go to, or you talk to people, what do you really do to keep yourself updated? Um, that's a great question. You know, it's not a specific specific publication at this point in my career. To be honest with you, it's the relationships I have, you know, with all the companies and people I've had the the wonderful opportunity to work with, you know, across verticals all over the place. I'm more than often when I run into a new marketing problem or something I'm interested in, um, you know, we'll go to my personal network and and see what they know about it, and then they usually have you know, specific and individual content recommendations for me. It's funny. I've thought about this before. There's a bunch of like good, um, I'll call them, you know, tactically specific, um, you know, publications or newsletters or even influencers that you can follow. So it would highly depend on, you know, what I was trying to, to learn more about. So for example, let's say I was going down like a copywriting rabbit hole or something. There's a great website called very good copy. And, um, uh, I'm forgetting the guy's name right now, but but verygoodcopy.io or I don't think it's .com, but just, just Google search very good copy and you'll find it. This guy's got the greatest content on copywriting, you know, I've ever seen. And so when I want to go down a copywriting rabbit hole, I go and do that. If I'm thinking about video or something like that, it all depends on what I want to learn at that particular point. That's the brilliance of what we do. And, you know, and the internet as it stands today is that I just ask Google the question and what comes up is is a myriad of answers. So it's not, it's not something specific. It's just, you know, there's almost too much information out there. So I don't follow anything. I go find what I need when I need it, I guess. Perfect. And I think I think I uh, also pretty much follow what, what you're saying. Like I, I look for stuff when I need, need to look for stuff because otherwise there's just too much on the net and there's too much to uh, study and learn, right? So uh, that's, that's, that's great. Um, we we touched upon this topic a little bit uh, on on freelancers, but you know, if if as we move right as as the future of work um, 
as we proceed towards how future of work is transforming, a lot of people, uh, especially millennials and thereafter, they, they are looking at freelance work. And if they are specifically looking at B2B marketing as a career option, what what do you think they should do and what, what do you think they should learn, uh, especially to become B2B freelance marketers? So and that's an awesome question. And I think this is almost for this answer would go for almost any any marketing, um, almost any job entirely, to be perfectly honest with you. The one thing that people have the hardest time finding are people that can write well that can communicate in the English language or any language for that matter. I imagine this problem is not like unique to quote unquote America or, or the English speaking world, but someone that can communicate clearly, compellingly and concisely um, in the written word and, and understands how to tell a story. So, so if there was one skill that I would tell any B2B marketer to go out and figure out how to learn, it would be how to write. And there's two different kinds of writing, right? Like there's regular writing, your argumentative or persuade, you know, persuasive writing, which is like, you know, if you were in school right now, it'd be like the expository essay. Um, and then there's copywriting, which is, you know, writing to to inspire people to take action to do something. Become a copywriting expert. You know, copy is going to drive every single thing you do, whether it's email, ads, landing pages whatever. If you can't write well, um, then you're gonna have to find somebody that does. But if you're that person that can write well, you know, even with all the AI copy tools and all that kind of stuff popping up right now, you will be always employable. Great. That's, that's very interesting. Uh, Mike, that's, that's a very, that's a fantastic perspective, right? Um, uh, it kind of joins the dots, right? Like you spoke about content being something which is so critical. And then now you're talking about writing. Um, if we can somehow marry these two, right? And you can, you know, create great content. It's, it's fantastic, isn't it? So yeah, the other thing, and you'll, I think you'll probably like this answer more, Davis, which I think is important, but I think these things are easier to learn in the sense that it, you have to, writing is a craft. So you need to practice it all the time. It, it's like, it's like any type of skill. If you play golf or, you know, play tennis or, or basketball or whatever, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. Um, and so it's a lifelong pursuit because to write is to think and all that kind of stuff. But the other thing, of course, would be understanding, you know, how to use tools, you know, getting a very clean and clear understanding for how you can leverage, whether it's a CRM, marketing automation, sales automation tools, like being the person that has enough knowledge as a marketer to be able to wire a stack together using Zapier or whatever else is, would be the other thing I would, I would say from a growth marketing perspective, particularly in a B2B setting is you're never going to have the attention of your development team as much as you want it. So the other skill set would be learn. But I think that stuff is easier to learn than how to be a good writer, which is why I led with the writing thing. But but understanding how to use tools and being an expert at how to how to wire a, a marketing stack together um, and use analytics tools, it would be the other side of that coin. The rest is, you know, not rocket science. But these two things are the, are the two pillars of like a, a really solid B2B marketer to me. That's fantastic, Mike. So given all the, uh, you know, topics that you've spoken about, uh, I'm sure a lot of uh, people in our audience would like to reach out to you. So I would like to understand from you, what's the, where do you reside in terms of your online space? Where can people come and find you? Yeah. So the, the easiest way to find me is going to be on LinkedIn. Um, 
you know, this will be ironic. I don't post all that much anymore because I'm so busy. It was, I don't even take my own advice, Davis, which is stupid. Um, uh, but, but, you know, you get so busy creating strategies for other people. Sometimes you fail to execute them for yourself. Um, but the easiest place to find me is on LinkedIn. You, you know, search for my Carol Head of Growth Phenomenon. Um, you can get my email, uh, which is mcarolphenomenon.com um, or even my phone number or whatever else. As it says in my LinkedIn profile, I'm a, a yes and type of person. So if you need something, just reach out and I'm, I'm glad to help as long as I've got the time. Perfect, Mike. You know, you have given so much uh, of knowledge, uh, you know, in this this uh, podcast. And uh, I've really enjoyed this, to be honest. Learned so much from you, uh, you know, in, in the B2B marketing space. You are uh, too kind, sir. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm going to be in touch with you forever probably (laughs) uh, (laughs) i'm going to pick your brains for you know some of the stuff that you spoke about and um, it was a pleasure talking to you mike thanks for your time and uh talk to you soon awesome yeah thank you such a pleasure being here um yeah i'm